Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show.
What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast on Monday, the 12th of June. Hope you're all well. Hope you all had a nice weekend. And of course, we must start with Manchester City completing their treble and beating Inter Milan 1-0 in the European Cup final on Saturday night. Rodri with the only goal of the game. A game that was, in truth, very dull. Now, I've seen some people say City were lucky, Inter beat them on XG, yada, yada, yada. Most of Inter's XG came after City scored. City had sat back and were trying to take the sting out of the game, but it didn't really work. And if Romelu Lukaku had even an ounce of composure in front of goal, he would have scored at least one, if not two goals. Inter, very unlucky. You could make a case that over the 90 minutes, Inter were the better team. Certainly, the first half was very evenly split. City did dominate the early goings in the second half, and then the game fell into a pattern where it just felt like it was going to be a nil-nil, that Inter were going to be resolute enough to hold City out. Haaland had an awful game, as Zerbi pocketed him. Kevin De Bruyne had to leave the action early in the first half with what turned out to be a complete tear of his hamstring. We didn't know, but going into the game, he had been playing with a tear in his hamstring. That's why he'd missed a number of games. And 35 minutes into this one, his hamstring burst, and uh, that was the end of him. Phil Foden came on. Foden would go on to miss a pretty good chance of his own. But the game was fairly stale, and overall, a draw an extra time probably would have been a fair reflection of what we saw. Now, I will say, the Rodri finish is excellent, but Hakan Chalanaglu, you should be ashamed of yourself. You basically hid behind one of your teammates rather than making an actual attempt to block what wasn't a hard-hit shot. Two minutes later, Inter should have equalised. DeMarco hit the bar, had another shot which hit Lukaku, Dumfries headed it back. It was just it was just a mess. How Lukaku got himself in the way, I don't know. Three minutes later, Lukaku had a big chance. Inter piled on the pressure. Then Foden almost scored on a counter. And then with two minutes left, I just I don't understand what went through Lukaku's head. It's a great headed I don't want to call it a cross. It's a it's a cross from the right. Robin Gosens heads it back across. Lukaku is unmarked, six yards out. Put it anywhere and you score. And instead he hit the only person standing there. He hit Ederson. Ederson didn't save that shot. The ball hit him. If Lukaku puts it a foot either side, it's a goal. And we're away to extra time. Lukaku missed another chance then. Just after that. And then with six uh, sorry, six minutes into added time, Gosens has a chance and Ederson makes another save. And that's it. And City are champions. And you can make the case that in all three European finals this season, the better team lost. I don't think that's truly the case in this game. I think this was very even. I think Inter surprised a lot of people. I don't think many players individually played well. Azerbi 
Bastoni, DeMarco. I thought they were quite good for Inter, Azerbi especially. Uh, for City, Diaz, Stones and Bernardo Silva. It's probably it, really. Rodri didn't play well but scored and somehow was given man of the match well, probably because he scored. Haaland, like I said, was awful. Gundogan struggled to get into the game. Grealish wasn't really in the game. City didn't perform, but Inter weren't good enough to punish them. And City are European Cup champions for the first time in their history. And congrats to them. But the fact of it is, there is still this cloud that hangs over them. Where they have been charged with industrial-scale cheating over a prolonged period. Cheating that doesn't necessarily stop at any point. It just hasn't been investigated up to the modern day. And until that is cleared, then none of this is something you can really be all that impressed by. And we saw the usual hyperbole, knee-jerk reaction, and recency bias come out after the game. Is Pep the greatest manager ever? I don't know, is he? How would anybody know? He's had the deck stacked in his favour at every single stop. And his current club are accused of mass amounts of cheating to get here. Now, you won't take away the work he did at Barca. He crafted one of the great club sides of all time. But it's a lot easier to do that when you walk into a job and this incredible group of players is waiting for you. A team that had won the Champions League only two years prior to that. They finished third the year he took before he took over. But Messi was there, Iniesta was there, Xavi was there, Pique was agreed to come in, Dani Alves was already agreed, Puyol was there, Abidal was there, Victor Valdez was there, Busquets was at the club, Pep, to his credit, did promote him. He promoted Pedro, but Henri was there. I mean, Etu was there. This wasn't like he had to go in and rebuild anything. He didn't buy anybody. The two new arrivals... PK and Danny Alves, those deals had been done months before he took over. Frank Reichard was more involved in those. And then the third new player was Busquets, who was already at the club. Yaya Toure was there, lest we forget, played centre-back in the final. The second team he won the European Cup, but he certainly had more involvement with the building of it. But again, it was largely the same group of players. There was a couple of changes. David Villa been the most notable one. Pedro, of course, again, was already there. I credit to Pep for giving those players the opportunity, him and Busquets, but I don't think he's the only manager that would have would have seen that in them. The Bayern Munich job he walked into, they just won the treble. They were the best team in Europe. He didn't win the European Cup there. And then with City, I mean, City had already won a couple of league titles before he got there. And if you look at the first City team that he had, the the best players in that team were there before he got there. Sterling, Aguero, Kevin De Bruyne, Fernandinho, David Silva, Vincent Company. They were all there. And he did make some poor signings in those early days. He wasted a lot of money. And again, that's the other thing. He's had a ludicrous amount of money to spend. 
And that's just the money we know about, the above table money. What about the under the table money? So is he the greatest manager ever? No, I don't believe so. I don't believe he's he's earned that yet. I don't know that he ever will because I don't know that he'll ever take a job where he actually has to earn it. You know, he'll never manage a Mines or a Dortmund. He'd never take over a mid-table Liverpool. He's never managed St. Mirren or Aberdeen or a mid-table Manchester United and built them into a dynasty. He has never done what Bob Paisley did, what Brian Clough did. So, no, I, I don't believe he is the best manager ever. I saw some very foolish people claim that this City team is the best team of all time. This season isn't even the best City team that Pep has had. Pep's 17-19 to team would have wiped the floor with this team. Pep's Barcelona team would have wiped the floor with this team. I'd wager Liverpool's 2018-2020 team would beat this team. Arsenal's Invincibles would beat this team. United's treble winners would wipe the floor with them. This idea that this is the best team we've ever seen. They're they're not even top five. They don't come close to top five. Yes, they won a treble. Yes, it's a great achievement. But trebles are becoming a little bit more common. Not necessarily in England, obviously. But, you know, Bayern have won two trebles in the last 10 years or so. He himself won a treble at Barca. We've seen teams win the treble. Jose won one with Inter. When United did it, nobody did that. Nobody did that. But as I talked about when we were talking about the FA Cup final and talking about teams doing the double, these things are becoming more common. I will die on the hill that the United 99 team was significantly better than this one. If you're picking a combined 11, it's 8-3 to three to United. It's Schmeichel, it's Neville, it's Diaz, Stam, Irwin, Beckham, Scholes, Keane, Giggs, Kevin De Bruyne, Erling Haaland. You've got three City players in there. And I'm not going to change my view on that. In fact, it's going to strengthen the more I watch this team play. I think Ferguson was a better manager than than Pep. Pep is probably a better coach. And Pep might be the best coach ever. But this idea that he changes football is, is so strange. Like, yes, he inspires a lot of young coaches. Absolutely, he does. Because the style of football is appealing. But nothing he does is new. It's not anything he's invented. It's something he's taken from the past, and that's what I would give him huge credit for, is his ability to find things from the past, modernize them, and implement them. I think that's where he does stand out. But I think if you put this United team, this City team up against that United team, Ferguson at that point, I think he would have eaten Pep alive. He'd have been in the press the week before, praising him, talking about how good he was, and then he'd have battered him. He'd have battered him in the press and he'd have shook him and Pep wouldn't know which way to look. And I saw some some clown said at the weekend, well, this City team is much fitter than that United team was. And I thought that was a bit of a strange thing to say. You don't really seem to understand how eras work and 
if we could see this team play that team, we would need a time-travelling device to either bring that United team to now or this City team to then. They wouldn't play in some alternate dimension where it's, you know, a team from now versus a team from then with all the surrounding factors that come with now versus then. It would either be United playing today with today's rules, today's training methods, nutrition, etc., 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 or City having to go back and play United in that era. And if City went back and played United in that era, that game is an absolute walloping. If United came forward to play now, I think United would still win. Because if you gave the modern medicine and modern sports science and modern nutrition to incredibly well-conditioned players like Beckham and Keane and Giggs, they'd be even better now. They'd be even better now. This idea that these guys wouldn't be able to play today is is ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. I just find find the whole discourse so funny. Like people saying, Oh, John Stones, he's he's the one of the greatest English centre backs ever. No, he's not. He's not even slightly one of the greatest English centre back centre backs ever. And you're saying it based on him playing in midfield. Now, Stones had a good game on Saturday night, but it was a good game. It wasn't an all-time performance. It was a 7.5, 8 out of 10. It wasn't a 10 out of 10 performance. Oh, he played in the half space. He played risk-averse football. He got it, he kept it, he gave it simple. Yes, there was a couple of little dribbles that were impressive. There was one lovely around-the-corner pass that he played. By and large, it was very, very simple stuff. And we have seen centre-backs play in midfield before. And we've seen midfielders play at centre-back before. We've seen all these things before. Just because you don't remember it or you didn't see it doesn't mean it didn't happen before. But this idea that this is the best team ever, I mean, please. Please, it's not even the best team in England in the last five years. It's third on that list for me. Look at the teams they went up against. Look around Europe. Just take a quick look around Europe. Who's the second best team in Europe this season? Ask yourself that question. Who's the second best team in Europe this season? Because Bayern Munich had a really poor season by Bayern Munich standards. Real Madrid had a poor season. They were old, they were injury prone. They were poor this season. Barca won La Liga at a canter. And got comfortably swept aside by an average Manchester United team in the Europa League. Having been dumped out of the Champions League in the group stage. They weren't a great team by any stretch. Neither Milan club was all that good this year overall. Juventus weren't good this year. Napoli were by far the best team in Syria. Napoli were probably the best team, the second best team in Europe this season. After City. That's not a vintage field. Go back and look at who United came through. A great Barcelona team. A great Bayern team. If you take a look at 
that Arsenal team that they overcame as well. That was a pretty special collection of players that in any other season win a double. Now, the Juventus side that... um, The Juventus side that United overcame, people will say, oh, they finished seventh. They did, that's fair enough. They finished two points outside a third behind a really strong Milan team and a pretty good Lazio team that would win the league the next year. Like, it wasn't a bad Juventus team. They just took the rye off the prize late in the season. And if it was, like I say, one win is all they were missing out on. One more win, they would have finished third. That was a better team, that Juventus team, than this Inter Milan team. Serie A was the strongest league in Europe at the time. Like, look at the teams that were there. That Fiorentina team was unbelievable. Parma were great at the time. Roma were great at the time. They would win the title two years later. That was a much stronger league than Serie A is now. Udinese were really good. They finished above them as well, based on the head-to-head record. That was a team with Marcio Amoroso up front. Guy scored goals for fun. Like United overcame far better competition than this City team did. United were much stronger mentally than this City team. Their mindset was incredible. You give credit to this year, this year's City team, but there is context around it. It's been a particularly weak season across the board. Like PSG were poor this year. Like there wasn't a standout team other than City. In other years, there's been two or three around Europe that you've looked at and thought, well, they're monsters. But this season, it was pretty clearly City and then a gulf and then everybody else. With Napoli, the only club who looked like they might give City trouble. And I do wonder how that final would have played out if Napoli had gotten past AC Milan. I think they would have beaten Inter Milan. And that final would have been interesting, but that would have been the two best teams in Europe. But Napoli went out in the quarterfinal stage. I don't know. Anyway, we'll move on. We'll move on to something um, a bit more somber, which is the passing of Silvio Berlusconi at age 83. Um, He has passed away today. He was obviously best known in football terms as the owner of AC Milan from 1986 to 2017. He was also the Prime Minister of Italy on four different occasions. Um, We won't get into his politics because when you hear Berlusconi, you hear scandal, you hear corruption... Not much of it is good. But from a footballing point of view, that's what I want to focus on. This is a a guy who was one of the great owners. One of the great owners. He bought Milan in 1986. And they underwent an unprecedented run of success. You have to remember, Milan pre-Berlusconi were obviously a big club. They'd had 
plenty of success. They'd won European honours. They'd won the European Cup in 1963. They'd won the Cup Winners' Cup in 67. The European Cup again in 69. The Cup Winners' Cup again in 73. They'd won a bunch of league titles in 51, 55, 57, 59, 62, 68 and 79. But then in 1980, they were relegated as part of a match-fixing scandal. If you're not aware of the Totonero match-fixing scandal in 1980, it's worth looking up. They were relegated. Lazio were relegated. Avellino, Bologna, Perugia, Palermo, and Taranto, they were all given points deductions. Some players got huge suspensions. Enrico Albertoso was one of the greatest goalkeepers of all time. He got a four-year suspension. Massimo Sassatori, five-year suspension. Stefano Pellegrini, six-year suspension. This ended careers, and rightly so. Rightly so. But it it threw Milan into a, a spiral. They went into Serie B. They managed to come back up straight away. But then they got relegated straight away again. And then they came back up. And the cost of the relegations and having to try and fight the way back up and spend Syria money with a Syria B income meant that they were in financial hell. They were on the brink of complete liquidation when Berlusconi bought them in February of 96. He made one of the braver decisions any owner has made in that he appointed Arrigo Sacchi, who had had no playing career, had been managing at lower levels. He'd bounced around. He'd been at Rimini twice, been at Bellaria. He'd been at Cecina as a youth coach, Fiorentina as a youth coach. He was Parma manager, and they beat AC Milan in the Coppa Italia. And that's what attracted the interest of Berlusconi. So Berlusconi appointed him. And then they got about building what I think is the greatest team of all time. They win the league in 87-88. They win the European Cup in 88-89. They win it again in 89-90, finishing second in the league. They finished second in the league the following season as well. Then in 91-92, they win the title. 92-93, they win the title. 93-94, they win the title and they win the Champions League. At this point, Fabio Capello is obviously manager for these these titles and this run. But you think of that turnaround from the brink of extinction in 86. By 94, they've won three European Cups and four league titles. They got to the Champions League final again in 95 and lost. They won the title in 96. They won the title in 99. They won the European Cup in 2003. They won the league title in 04. European Cup final in 05. Won the European Cup again in 07. League title in 2011. And that was the last real success of the Berlusconi era. As 
Serie A struggled financially with the rise of the Premier League and the fact that the Premier League could overpay with the financial collapse in Italy. And we saw it across the board with so many of those Italian clubs just going out of business like Napoli and Fiorentina did or just dropping off the level that they'd previously been at like Parma and Napoli and Fiorentina did. It was only really the big three that were able to sort of sustain. Lazio almost went bust. Roma almost went bust. Torino almost went bust. Those teams that had, you know, Lazio and Roma won the title. Torino had had a couple of good seasons, but they never really threatened to win anything. But, you know, they, they overspent. And unfortunately, the money stopped rolling in. Fans stopped going to the games. Stadiums fell into disrepair. But when you look at that run between 86 and 06, and for me, that's the greatest era of any league ever, 86 to 06, Syria. What Milan accomplished in that time was outrageous. To win five European Cups is an incredible achievement. But they got to seven finals under Berlusconi's watch. They won seven league titles. Now, seven league titles in 20 years doesn't seem like much, but when you factor in the great teams they were going up against, Marcello Lippi's Juventus, who were incredible. Inter, spending money hand over fist. Ericsson's incredible Lazio team. Capello's Roma. Capello's Juve. The Parma team with Zola and Aspria and Brawling. The second iteration of Parma that had Turam, Cannavaro and Buffon, the Fiorentina teams with Badastuta and Rui Costa, etc. Like they were going up against amazing teams. There was just incredible depth to that league back then. And you look at some of the players that they signed over the years, and it is it's incredible who they brought in. Marco van Basten... Rude Hullet, Carlo Ancelotti, Roberto Muzzi, who later in his career become far better known, not so much at Milan, but when he went to Torino and then to Parma, um, which is where Milan had bought him from, he was one of Saki's boys. Costa Curta had been brought back off a loan. Angelo Colombo. I mean, this is what I mean by building a team. Van Basten, Hullet, Ancelotti, Colombo, there's four new signings that he put into that team and he brought Costa Curta back in and gave him his opportunity. That's that's half the team. That's imprinting yourself on the team. That's what Saki did in his first season. In their second season, they bring in Rijkaard. They bring in uh, Claudio Borgi, who's a would go on to have a good career and they won the European Cup. Diego Fuser, he'd go on to have a really good career elsewhere, but another great example, Marco Simone, remember him? Really good striker. And then in the 90s, this is when Berlusconi just decided to step things up a level. I mean, they bring in Rossi, Massimo Taibi, do you remember him from Manchester United? He was dreadful. Um, Angelo Carboni was a good midfielder. 92, you see Zvonimir Boban arrive. Dimitri Albertini arrived. 
mean, these were really good signings. Giovanni Elber, who'd go on to have an outrageous career with Bayern Munich. It was AC Milan that brought him to Europe. They brought him in as a complete unknown. He was playing for a club called Londrina in Brazil. They bought him as an 18-year-old. It didn't work out. He spent his entire Milan career on loan with Grasshopper Zurich, but it was Milan that bought him. Milan that brought him to Europe as they started to scout South America. But, I mean, to bring in Boban and Albertini in one summer is a hell of a go. The next season, Gianluigi Lentini, world record fee. Jean-Pierre Papin was one of the best strikers in the world. Dejan Savicevic was one of the best players in the world. Stefano Aranio, really good, serviceable midfielder. Uh, he came to England at a later stage and played with Derby County, people re- should remember. Um, that, was a, that was incredible recruitment. Now, it didn't work out, but the ambition was there. Lentini, if not for the car crash, probably becomes one of the best players the game ever saw. Papan, he was incredible, an incredible goal scorer. Probably the best volleyer of a ball I've ever seen. He'd been unbelievable from Marseille. There were issues when he went to Milan outside of football that affected his time there. He was also, he was 29, but like it was a big money, big swing kind of buy. You look through the squads they had year after year and it's just phenomenal, the talent. And Savicevic is one of the most gifted players that I've ever seen. Then it's Panucci, uh, F- Florin Rodicheu, Hadji's executioner, he was nicknamed, um, Romanian striker. He was a great player. Bring in Brian Laudrup on loan. Bring back Rude Hullet. He'd left and gone to Sampdoria. Now they bring him back. Carlo Cudicini, Paolo Di Canio. It's just some of the names here are just amazing. And then... Then in 95, they go big again. They bring in Baggio and they bring in George Weah and they sign a certain Patrick Vieira. Now, what could have been with him? Massimo Ambrosini, he's another player that would go on to have a long career. But what would have happened if Vieira had stayed there? What would he have won? Reno Gattuso wouldn't have had the career he had, I'll tell you that. Um, Michael Reitziger, Edgar Davids, Jesper Blomquist would, would win a Champions League with United. Christoph Dugarry. This was uh, more of a settling kind of season. Signing players on freeze on the cheap. Obviously, the pinch was felt. He might have been a bit busy with his pol- uh, political career at that point. Clivert. Christian Ziga. Winston Bogart. Chelsea fans won't, won't remember him too well, too fondly. There was so many... So many fantastic players that went through Milan in the 90s. Oliver Bierhoff, Thomas Helweg, really good player. Jens Lehmann would have a great career with Arsenal and the the German national team. Roberto Ayala, bet people forget he played for Milan two years before he went to Valencia. And Napoli had brought him to Europe. Milan took him in. There was huge hope for him. But for whatever reason, it didn't really didn't work. I don't know if he didn't settle or what it was. Uh, Bruno and Gotti had forgotten he existed. Dida signed that winter. 
go on to be first choice goalkeeper for a long time. Then Shevchenko and Gattuso in the same summer and what they would go on to achieve at the club. Fabrizio Colaccini, best known for his time at at Juventus. Sorry, Juventus. <laughs> Sorry. His time at Newcastle. Um, it was, again, it was Milan that brought him to Europe. Taribo West. Long-time favourite of my good friend Kieran O'Grady. Um, Kaladze, he was a quality player for them. Yeah, I mean, Milan were just... They were just different, and they brought in elite-level players time and time again, while everyone else sort of stumbled and bumbled about. They just went and, and bought what they needed to buy. Alessandro Nesta and Clarence Seedorf in one summer. The, the scariest, and Rivaldo on a free, by the way. Um, the funniest thing about the Seedorf deal is that they got him for nothing. They gave Inter Francesco Coco, who was a, a decent left wing back, but nothing more than that. And they got Clarence Seedorf back in return. Uh, Dario Simic was a really good Croatian centre back. Who else do we have here? Cafu on a free from Roma. Kaka. Brought him to Europe. Just sensational players, year after year after year. Now, obviously, things ended. Yapstam, Hernan Crespo went on loan. One of the great sadnesses for me is that Redondo was just plagued by injuries while he was there. Because when they got him, they got him from, from Real. I don't know why Real let him go. I assume they knew his knee was, was fitting to give up. But um, I, I just I would have loved to have seen how that would have worked out with him. But yeah, I mean, Milan were just incredible. Towards the end of his tenure, things got a bit weird with Berlusconi. And he had some financial issues. He was busy with his politics. He was less involved in the team. The team went through Calciopoli. And there was just a lot of negativity around the club. And in his final years, it became... It became quite clear that there was a split in how the club was to be run. There was the old school of Berlusconi and um, Galliani and how they wanted to run the club, which was to run them like Milan had been run in the past. And then there was the younger people involved who realised that Milan couldn't really afford to run that way anymore. They couldn't afford to throw money around left and right. And eventually, the club was sold. 2017, the sale was completed. And Milan, I mean, what have they won since? One league title? You know? Unfortunately, they're back in a period of kind of drifting, which they have had been in prior to his sale without question. But one league title in 12 years is unacceptable for that club. They haven't won the European Cup since 07. I think when when they won that one, nobody would have expected it would be so long. That was Maldini's fifth. He won them all there. He won every one of the European Cups that they won under the Berlusconi Berlusconi era, Maldini was part of. But, I mean, what, what an incredible run as an owner. To take them from the brink of going out of business to 
undoubtedly the best team in the world. For me, the best club side we ever saw, 89-90. From, sorry, 88-90. to 90, I think just, I just don't think anybody's, anybody's hit that level yet. I, I don't care if they didn't win trebles. I genuinely don't care about what I saw. And, uh, and I think that team put them into any era. I think they would have beaten any team. Put any team into their era, I think they beat them. So, you know, it is what it is. It's a, it's a big loss for football. He'd obviously decided he was going to repeat the magic uh, with Monza. And he had bought a brought Galliani there with him as his uh, his advisor. They were a financial mess. They'd been bankrupt in 04, bankrupt in 15. He bought the club in 2018, brought them back up to Syria B after a 19-year absence. And then they were promoted to Syria A for the first time ever in 2022. This past season was their first ever season. And they finished respectively, respectively in mid-table. And he had he had plans to grow that club and not maybe reach the levels that he reached with Milan, but certainly to improve the club, build them to a standard where they could be Serie A regulars, potentially you know bring some silverware to the club, maybe a Coppa Italia. Um, Monza was the club of Galliani. Galliani is from Monza. He grew up going to these to the games at this club back in the day. And those two were thick as thieves. Absolutely thick as thieves. And they were proper old school. The proper old school approach to things. Deals were done quietly behind the scenes. Players were admonished publicly. Managers were dressed down publicly. Things that you don't generally see uh, in modern football, but they held on to the old ways and it was successful for them. They took them from the third division to the top flight and a comfortable survival in the top flight in five years. They beat Juventus. I mean, that's pretty amazing. A month into their tenure in the top flight, their first ever go in the top flight, They finished, they, sorry, they beat Juventus. They had the highest point tally among newly promoted teams in Europe's top five leagues in this past season and the second highest points tally for a Serie A debutee in history. And again, they'd been big and brave with some of the transfer moves that they'd made, some of the loans that they'd, they'd sought. Yeah, he leaves a great legacy in football. In politics, not so much, but that's something that other people can talk about. It's not for me. I'm going to take a break. When I come back, we're going to do the news and the gossip, and that will be us for today. So I will see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So we are going to do some news. Ivan Tony has said that Miss, <coughs> excuse me, missing the World Cup was a bigger blow to him than the eight-month ban he has received from the FA. My guess is that he missed the World Cup because of said ban. Uh, he did get his 
call up to the England team after that, but I, I believe he was left out of the World Cup because of the ban. Uh, Tom Cannon, the young Everton player who has been playing for Ireland's under 21s, has been approached by England. He is English born, born and raised in Liverpool, qualifies for Irish, for the Irish team through parentage. Look, my hope is that he'll stay with Ireland, but if he makes a decision to play for England, you can't criticise him because he is an English lad. And he's a really, really talented young player. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. But I hope that he will stick to playing with Ireland. Um, Lee Carras is the England under 21 manager, former Irish international probably keeps a close eye and has probably seen Cannon impress for Ireland. But, you know, the possibility of a Cannon partnership in the long term with Evan Ferguson was something that I was looking forward to and hopefully it will still come through. Uh, David Moyes is to stay at West Ham. I think this is a mistake. I think it's a mistake for him. I think it's a mistake for the club. I think he should be leaving on a high. I have a feeling West Ham are going to have a rough summer based on some of the names being linked. I don't think it's going to be all that impressive. Uh, funny story, though. Talk sport, spoofers that they are, Alex Crook, one of the main spoofers in the spoofing industry, cl- came out and claimed that West Ham were set to pay the release clause in Joe Polina's contract to get him from Fulham. And Fulham owner Tony Khan took to Twitter to announce there is no release clause. So, yeah, there's that. Um, two players have pulled out of the England squad through injuries. Those are Lewis Dunk. Shame for him because he long over was long overdue his call up, and Jude Bellingham, who we knew was going to miss out because of his knee injury. Um, Phil McNulty has written a piece: Manchester City among the greatest sides I've seen, but who are yours? So he's picked the best sides he's seen since working for the BBC. So he's with the BBC probably twenty five years, maybe. So he's picked Klopp's eighteen to twenty Liverpool. He's picked the Real Madrid that won three Champions Leagues in a row, which, absolutely a fair shout. Uh, Guardiola's Barcelona, absolutely. The Spanish national team of, of 08 to 12, I think that's easily the best international team of all time. And then, obviously, there's two Man United teams you could pick. There's the 99 treble winners, but there's also the 08 double winners. Now, their midfield wasn't great, but they had an unbelievable attack. And then Mourinho's Chelsea, 04 to 06, I would pick them to beat this City team. And then Wenger's Invincibles. I think they're all fair shouts. I also think he's missed out on 17 to 19 City. And I think I would take each of them. And that's just in that period. I think I'd take each of them. I think I'd take Jupp Heinke's Bayern Munich over this City team. I think I'd take Hansi Flick's Bayern Munich team over this City team. Genuinely. Because they played against a higher calibre of opposition. Christian Perslow has stepped down as Aston Villa's chief executive. I do think he might have been told to get out before we have to put you out. Uh, it's the right time for Villa, certainly, to be moving on from. He's done okay there. Certainly better there than he did at Liverpool. But, yeah, I mean, Christian Perslow is not someone you want in a key decision-making role at your club, uh, under no circumstances should you want Christian Perslow in an important role at your club. And after the catastrophe of the Gerard fiasco 
I do think it's right that he move on and do something else because he's the one that for, uh, decided to forgo a real hunt for a new manager and just appoint Gerard, and obviously it was a disaster. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain are planning a move for Manchester City's Bernardo Silva. I suppose it does make sense, but it goes completely against their, you know, announced new policy of younger French players. West Ham are interested in a swap deal involving Emile Smith-Rowe if Declan Rice joins Arsenal. That's That would be a move that would suit everybody. Ajax are demanding £45 million for Edson Alvarez, who has emerged as an option to replace Rice. £45 million is high for him. 35 I think, is about fair. Bayern Munich's top midfield target is Declan Rice. I, I don't believe he is their top midfield target, but they definitely have interest. Um, but he's going to go to Arsenal. I mean, I think that's pretty cut and dried. Uh, Manchester City have held talks with RB Leipzig over Josco Gvardiol. Um, again, I believe they are interested. I would doubt they've opened talks just yet. And because this is from Peter Rourke, we can be fairly certain they haven't. Talks between Arsenal and João Canseo over a move are progressing positively. And City won £45 million from That's from Steve Kay on football transfers, therefore spoofing. Manchester United boss Eric Ten Hag has blocked Eintracht Frankfurt's attempt to sign Victor Lindelof. He does not want the 28-year-old Swede to leave. United have been told that Rasmus Hoysland and Axel de Sassi both want to move to Old Trafford this summer. Yeah, I mean, they don't hugely move the needle next season, but Hoysland has huge potential. But it'll take a bit of time for him to settle in. Chelsea have opened talks with Southampton over Romeo Lavia. Inter Milan's Cameroonian goalkeeper Andre Onana has an agreement in principle with Chelsea, but Inter have rejected Chelsea's thirty-four million pound bid. That has been um, exploit ex- exploited, not exploited. It has been exposed as lies. Uh, Chelsea are also interested in Mike Mannion. That would be a move that would make sense. And I don't know if he'd make the move, but it would be a good move for them. Luton Town have held talks with Asmir Begovic. Why he's dreadful. And I've also looked at Mark Travers. That one could make sense. Crystal Palace and Fulham are preparing bids for Victor Jokerez. Um He would make a lot more sense for Palace than for Fulham because I don't think him and Mitrovic is an ideal fit. Chelsea are waiting to hear whether or not AC Milan will go ahead with the 15 million signing of Ruben Loftus-Cheek after Paolo Maldini was sacked. Saudi Arabia side Al-Ali are ready to offer... Riyad Mahrez, a contract worth forty million a year to leave Man City this summer. Tottenham and Manchester United are both set to walk away from David Rea if Brentford do not, do not lower their asking price. They're asking forty million, which is just obscene. Newcastle boss Eddie Howe has been told he will have seventy-five million to spend this summer, with James Madison, Scott McTominay, Moises Caicedo, and Conor Gallagher among the players they're looking at. Alternatively, Newcastle will have a budget of between 100 and 150 million. The second one's from the Athletic, so we'll go with that uh, over the mail, which is not necessarily the best source. However, it is Craig Hope, who's generally fairly good. Uh, Real Madrid are closing in on the signing of Hitafe's Spanish goalkeeper, David Soria. That would make me wonder what happens with Andre, Andre Lunin, the young Ukrainian keeper, this summer. 
maybe he's now available, maybe just for loan, but would be worth someone throwing a bit at them for him. Chelsea and England midfielder Mason Mount is a high priority for Manchester United, but they will not pay more than sixty million. I mean, if they paid sixty million, that would be an overpay. But one year left. United are ready to move for Jordan Pickford. I really hope that's true. Newcastle want to sign Harry Maguire on loan. Maguire apparently doesn't want to leave United. United's plan to sign Kim Min Jae could be scuppered if Maguire refuses to leave. Uh, Liverpool are prepared to wait for James Ward-Prowse. Liverpool have no interest in James Ward-Prowse. Tottenham are considering a £50 million bid for Jadon Sancho. That wouldn't really make all that much sense. Brighton are hoping to beat Burnley to Anderlecht's Dutch keeper Bart Verbruggen in a deal worth £16 million. He is obscenely good. Newcastle are considering making a staggering offer for RB Leipzig's Dominic Zabozlai. He's got a buyout clause, so there's no staggering about it. Arsenal are leading the race to sign Declan Rice, but are not prepared to meet West Ham's asking price. West Ham apparently want £110 million. I think they'll settle around kind of 90 with add-ons to maybe... Yeah, 90 with add-ons to maybe 100. Um, Manchester United are trying to drive down the asking price for Diogo Costa. Porto are holding out for £64 million. That's a £25 million goalkeeper. Everton want Coventry's Victor Yorkerez, but face competition from West Ham, Wolves, Fulham, Leeds, Southampton and Sporting Lisbon. Southampton are gone down. They won't be buying him. Sporting would make a lot of sense. Leeds are gone down. They won't be buying him. Fulham, I don't think, makes sense. Wolves would make sense. And West Ham makes sense if Skimaka leaves. Borussia Mönchengladbach midfielder Manu Kone is on Liverpool's shortlist. Bayer Leverkusen want €40 million Euro or €34 million pounds for Jeremy Frimpong who is wanted by Manchester United. Aston Villa, Tottenham, Juventus and AC Milan want Galatasaray's 23-year-old Italy forward Nicolo Zaniolo. Um, I'm just going to leave that one there. Everton's Columbia defender, Yerimina, will not move to Besiktas when his contract expires because they're unwilling to meet his wage demands. So he is one of the players who's leaving Everton. He is their best defender, but unfortunately injuries just meant he was never fit enough. The agent of Benjamin Pavard has spoken to Liverpool. Um, that is from Christian Falk, who is a noted spoofer. However, he does have decent connections at Bayern. My question is, who is the agent of Carmenta? Who else do they have is the real question. Nobody. Nobody that would be of interest. Fingers crossed they're just kicking some tyres. Because I really don't want Liverpool to sign him. Uh, Florentino Perez wants to sign Kylian Mbappe, but not this year. Arsenal have agreed a new four-year deal with William Saliba. So they've likely bowed to his wage demands. And I would imagine that is a sizable contract. But well worth doing because he is really good. You just might regret it down the line when in two years he comes knocking for another new contract. And then you have to pay him 250 grand a week as opposed to put out what's probably 160, 170. Representatives of Saudi Arabian side Al Halil are in Paris trying to secure the signing of Neymar. Well, throw enough money, he'll probably take it. 
Chelsea are ready to offer Romelu Lukaku and Kaladu Koulibaly to Inter Milan in a bid to land Andre Onana. I don't think they're going to want Lukaku after what we just saw at the weekend. Onana said after finally wants to stay at the Italian club. Newcastle race, leading the race signed James Madison. Madison is the only Leicester player Newcastle have interested in, which means they won't be moving for Harvey Barnes, but they do want Scott McTominay. <coughs> it seems like Eddie Howe has control of recruitment there for the moment. Uh, Newcastle will only accept... Sorry, Manchester United will only accept a permanent deal from Newcastle for Harry Maguire, but will consider loaning him to Aston Villa. Odd. Tottenham are close to agreeing personal terms with David Rea. United are ready to make a £30 million bid for Jordan Pickford. I really, really hope this is true. I'm going to be very disappointed if it's not. Saudi Arabian club Al-Halil want AS Roma's former Chelsea, Manchester United and Tottenham boss, Jose Mourinho, to become their new manager. But Al-Ali also want to meet. I, I just don't see him going there. I hope he doesn't anyway. Liverpool are set to move for James Ward-Prowse. No, they're not. Uh, Crystal Palace winger... Wilfred Zaha is in talks with Paris Saint-Germain. Okay. Manchester United want Mason Mount again, but Chelsea are still holding out for €80 million, Euro, which is ridiculous. Randall Kolomouani is among six strikers United have on their shortlist, but he wants guarantees he will play. Liverpool have already held preliminary talks with Nice midfielder Kevin Turham and his fellow Frenchman, Manu Kone, they've held more than preliminary talks uh, with both players. Um, a move for Ar- to Arsenal for Declan Rice has been a done deal for a while. This is according to some outlet in Germany. Um, Ran. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Steven Gerrard is considering an offer to become the coach of El Etifak, who are keen to land the former Liverpool captain. Arsenal have opened talks with Leicester to try and sign Timothy Castanier. Um, Who's the journalist? Harry Sherlock. I don't know who he is. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, but I don't think that would be a very good signing because he's not very good. Um, Tottenham target Roger Ibanez will be leaving Roma with the Serie A side keen to complete a sale quickly. For the Brazil defender, he is good, to be fair. I think he'd fit well in the middle of a back three. Former Wolves defender Romain Sice wants to return to the Premier League after he left Wolves to become uh, to join Besiktas last summer. Uh, Burnley have offered £15 million for Bart for Bruggen. Atletico Madrid's Brazilian fullback Renan Lodi is unlikely to return to Nottingham Forest following his loan spell, with the player preferring a move to a Champions League club. Listen, this is Jack Talbot exclusive there's nothing exclusive about this he's just robbed someone's information simple as that uh manchester city are set to hand stefan ortega a deal worth eighty-five thousand a week to ward off interest from Bayern. Munich. i'm sure Bayern munich are looking at city's backup goalkeeper when they've already got jan summer as their own backup goalkeeper uh we also had reports yesterday that aston villa have agreed terms with yuri tielemans and that's where he will go next. And also that Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain could be heading to Villa. So could be two signings coming in. The Tielemans one is interesting. 
Ox, it's all about fitness. If he stays fit, I think he'd work well in that box midfield. Be good cover for Ramsey. Telemans is interesting, though. It'll be interesting to see how they use him. I'm going to leave it there. I'll talk to you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.